And on one of those occasions, uh, the church arranged for a number of um, small groups and homes to meet and uh, for me to meet them, do a meet and greet and just ask questions of me and I of them and just get to know people a little bit and get a feel for things. And in one of those meetings, uh, one of the men from the church asked me, his, this was his question, he said, Ben, what is the hardest, what is the most difficult thing that you've had to deal with in ministry? I didn't think very long, and I answered almost immediately, and I said, the most difficult thing in ministry for me has been when people walk away from God. When people walk away from the faith. I mean, it's, as pastors, when people leave the church, it hurts. But when people leave the faith, it's devastating to all of us. And you've all known them over the years. People that you knew, maybe you worked alongside of them, maybe they taught you. Could have been a pastor. They're well-known celebrities, of course, celebrity pastors and celebrity musicians who all of a sudden we hear, did you hear? They've walked away from the faith. They're now an atheist. It happens. And what are we to think of that? How does that happen? We've known people like that. Um, One of the things, of course, about that is um, we'll not get too deep in it this morning, but does that person know Christ person who walks away from the faith. We know that at the last judgment, Jesus is going to say to many people, I never knew you. You did lots of things in my name and you, you did lots of religious stuff and, and you, you professed my name, but there was no possession of the Spirit of God. There was no real life within them. John said in 1 John, they went out from us. Therefore, they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. That's just part of ministry. It's part of the Christian church. And we're going to see this morning that it is predicted. Usually, when someone leaves uh, the church, there's, uh, there's usually um, some sin involved in people. Um, And they will use either their sin to um, justify a false teaching or they will use false teaching to justify their sin one way or another. But sin is usually part of it. And we're going to see this morning the the warnings to us, but also an antidote for a specific kind of false teaching. In chapter 3, we saw last week, Chris did a great job of showing us that, that key passage where Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and he says to to Timothy, this is why I'm writing to you. It's like that phone call you make to someone, and you say, hey, how you doing? Doing well. What you been up to today? Oh, we went for this. And they say, well, the reason for my call is this. And Paul said to Timothy, the reason for my call is this, so that those in the household of God, those in the family of God, will know how to conduct themselves properly, how to live. And he's addressed the women, he's addressed the men, he's talked about the, uh, the elders and the deacons. And he says this is uh, the proper 
proper behavior that is aligned with the truth of the gospel. And he says, great is the mystery of godliness. That's really what he's talking about. He uses the term godliness throughout the pastoral epistles. And when he talks about the conduct in the church, what he's talking about is this is godliness, which is righteousness, it is holiness, it is Christ-likeness. And by common confession, great is this mystery of godliness. It comes through the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through him and by him and for him. There is no way that we can be godly on our own. It is a mystery but only in Christ, the one who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Godliness comes through him and not through us. And he's going to, to show them this is not the way of godliness. That's what we're going to see this morning. Not legalism and it's not asceticism. So we're going to see two things this morning. We're going to see uh, two things of which we are to beware, and then we're going to see a reason to be grateful. Two things of which we are to beware, and then a reason to be grateful. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Jesus prayed to his father in John 17. He said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And that is our prayer this morning, that through the reading of God's word and through the the teaching and the preaching of it and the exhortation of it, that we would be sanctified, that we would become righteous and holy and godly. So would you stand as we read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, the word of God. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And God's people said, amen. Please be seated. Something we have not done for some time, and I would like to ask you if you would kneel with me if you are able to pray. In one of the songs that we sang, One of the lines is, we have not feared you as we should. We've not bowed beneath thine awesome eye. Sometimes it's important for us to get on our knees, to bow before him as a sign of submission and humility. So if you're able, if you can't, if you've got bad knees, bad back, whatever it may be, that's fine. But if you're able, I invite you to kneel with me, please. Father, we have confessed our sins this morning, but we have been declared righteous through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as we come to your word, we pray to be fed for Jesus Christ is the bread of life, the bread of heaven. And we ask, Lord God, as we delve into this teaching and these warnings about these things that we have daily contact with, we pray that we would have sharp eyes to see our enemy and that we would have deepened eyes to gaze into your face through your word and therefore be protected 
from evil. We give ourselves to this task now in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. So, we are going to look in verses 1 through 5, two things of which we are to beware, and then a reason to be grateful. And the first thing we are to beware of, beware of false spirits. Beware of false spirits. We see this in verse 1. False spirit, evil spirits, demons, they are the source of false teaching. Any kind of false teaching, they come from evil spirits. He says in verse 1, the spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now we see a great contrast from both last week, the passage, but also what we see right here. And the contrast is this. We see God's spirit versus demonic spirits. We see truth versus error. We see the common confession of 316 versus a false confession, which is doctrines of demons. We see the mystery of true godliness versus legalism, which is no godliness at all. We're looking at the holy versus the unholy here, the false versus that which is true, and it is clear from what he is saying. He begins by telling us that the Spirit of God predicts that this is going to happen, has predicted, but the Spirit. He said, great is the mystery of godliness, this godliness that comes through Christ, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some are gonna fall away from the faith. The Spirit has said this numerous times in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself in Mark 13, 22 said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect, that even believers can be led astray. But take heed, he said, behold, I've told you everything in advance. He gave us a warning, Jesus did in Mark. Acts 20, 29, Paul, speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told the elders at um, Ephesus, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Later in 2 Thessalonians and Peter and in 2 Peter and Jude, many, many prophetic words in the, in the New Testament given by Jesus, Paul, Peter, Jude, John, warning about the later times, the latter days, which are, by the way, from the time of the first advent of Christ to the time of the second advent of Christ, we are living in the latter days. We are indeed latter day saints. The real ones. But throughout the New Testament, these prophetic words that one, that during this time, people are going to fall away. People will fall away. We've seen it happen. We should not be surprised when it happens because it has been predicted to happen. Not just, not just a prediction that it could happen, but a prophecy by the Spirit of God that it will And in verse 1, by the way, Paul is not talking about the false teachers yet, I believe. He's talking about some who are falling away. In other words, in the church at Ephesus, and even in our midst, that some fall away. He's going to get to the teachers in verse 2. But the point is that the enemy is actively involved in leading and pulling people away from the faith. And since the Holy Spirit of God said it will happen, we can expect that it will happen. 
Satan is an, as a roaring lion. He is uh, prowling about seeking someone whom he can devour. He is seeking to destroy our lives and to pull us away from the faith that we might depart from the faith, that we might walk away from the faith. And by the faith, he could mean the faith, meaning all that we believe, or he might mean, is he talking about their own faith? In some instances, um, he is talking about those who walk away from the faith. We believe in the doctrine of eternal security, so someone who is truly a believer is not going to walk away from a true faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, in the end, they will come back if they, if they do drift for some time. But some people depart from the faith, and it's a demonstration that they never knew Christ. But we need to be careful that it doesn't happen in our own midst. How do people fall away? Well, through demonic deception. He says, through deceitful spirits. We need to know what we're up against. We need to know who our enemy is. We need to know the tactic of the enemy. And the tactics of the enemy are lies, deceit. He lies to us. We are in a battle that is not against flesh and blood. We are in a spiritual battle and we need to know that the enemy has these demonic beings that are out there that are trying to deceive us from the truth. So, demonic deception and demonic doctrines. He said, the spirit says that in later times they will fall away and they will pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Satan doesn't use obvious lies And he doesn't tempt us with things that are ugly and repulsive. The the way of the world tells us that, you know, Satan is going to come to you and he's going to be this snarly, smelly, ugly thing and he's going to have the, you know, the horns and the pitchfork and the tail and all that and you're going to go, oh no, that's not how, how Satan works. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's deceptions are taking good things turning them a quarter turn so that they're false, taking beautiful things and marring them with sin, taking things that are true and introducing falsehood. He is the father of lies and everything that comes from him is a lie. From the very beginning, he said to Eve, has God not said? And he says that to us as well. All false teaching is demonic at its core. Any false doctrine Therefore, it's important for us to be vigilant about the truth because we are guardians of the truth. We are pillars of the truth of the living God and we are to be guardians of it because he is very, very tricky and he's been doing this a long time and he's got your number. He does. So we have to be wary of his schemes. Here's how he works sometimes. Truth plus error equals what? Error. It's like 1,735 times zero equals what? Zero, nothing, you got nothing. And truth plus error equals error. Jesus died for your sins. True? Yes. Jesus was once a man who became a god. False. Which means that this Jesus did not die for your sins. And believing in this Jesus has eternal consequences. Your faith in a Jesus who was once a man, ostensibly, or 
allegedly, and became a god, your faith in that Jesus is worthless. He cannot save you because he doesn't exist. There is only one Lord and one Savior and one God. And that's the way the enemy works with false teaching. We believe in in one God existing in three persons. We believe in three gods in one. No, we don't. But it sounds close enough to the truth. And the enemy takes that truth and he turns it a quarter turn or a half turn or on its head and he mixes error with falsehood, I mean error with truth, and all you get is error. And so we must be careful and vigilant. And those who fall away begin to pay attention to these things. Their attention is averted from the, the true things, from the, the truth that the God's, God's Spirit has given to us. They pay attention to something that is false. And to, they turn to something that sounds attractive because that's the way the enemy is going to package it. It's, it's, it's a good idea. People get bored with the truth and studying theology. All this doctrine is dry and boring and dusty. Who wants to study doctrine? Doctrine divides. It might. And no, we don't need to divide over minor doctrines, but the doctrines of the faith of who Jesus Christ is, the word of God, salvation by grace through faith, the great doctrines, the fundamental faith of the faith, we die for those things and we do not change over them. But some people are called away and their, their attention is inverted because they averted because there is the temptation that there's got to be more to it than this. There's something more fantastic and mystical. There's, God wants us to go deeper. And there's, there's, you know, the lost books of the New Testament, right? And there's this, there's this website on, and this guide. He just, you got to watch him. You got to listen to him because he's, he just makes so much sense. And I've never thought of things like that before. And he's funny. And he's good looking and whatever it may be. And people flock to people like that. And the consequences are deadly. deadly. This idea of esoteric thinking, of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is, is the idea that there's, there is a, there's hidden knowledge and there's, if you are privy to that which is hidden, then you are part of the initiated. Everybody wants that. I, I get people all the time send me things, you know, you got to go to this website because there are these things that people don't know about the Bible. Watch out. Watch out. And the Gnosticism, the what we call incipient Gnosticism of the day, Gnosticism became full-blown in the second or third century, which is the idea that matter is evil and the spirit world is good. And we hear that in the church sometimes today. I've heard people many times over the years say, well, God isn't really concerned with the physical. He's just concerned with the spiritual. That is not true. Your body has been redeemed with the price and everything that you own and everything that you are, your house, your car, your family, your, your marriage, all of that uh, that is physical, that all belongs to him and is sanctified by him. And God cares about your using physical things for spiritual purposes. Paul said to the Corinthians, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. 
The gospel is really very simple. There is a God. He has sent his son to die for your sins and he rose again. You must repent and believe in him. Got it? And the false teachers want to make it much more complicated. Well, there's got to be more to it than that. No, there's not. We are saved by grace through faith. So here's the lesson from verse one, just to begin with here. Please, pay close attention to what the Holy Spirit has said. Not evil spirits, not unholy spirits. What has been inscripturated by the Holy Spirit of God, pay attention to that. Hebrews 2.1 says, for this reason we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Pay much closer to what you have, have heard and what you have read and what you have been taught and what you know. And sometimes it gets dry, sometimes it gets boring, but that's the time to pay closer attention because that's the time that you might be deceived into thinking and believing something else. Pay close attention. In other words, your thoughts, your attitudes, your affections, your heart must be anchored in the truth that the Spirit of God has given to us. You must be tied to it. Otherwise, like a little skiff in the ocean, you're just going to drift. You're not moored to anything. There isn't anything to hold you there. You must pay a close and pay closer attention to what God has said in his word. And he goes on to say, for if the word spoken through angels proven inalterable, and he's talking about the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, the law, how will we in the new covenant escape if we neglect so great a salvation? A salvation that was given to us by the apostles and the prophets and signs and wonders by the Holy Spirit who inscripturated the word of God for us. And we must pay closer attention because people do not usually just up and make a rash decision that is sudden, I'm going to walk away from the faith. They drift. They're, they become inattentive and, and they just don't think about God as much as they, they should be. They don't think about the, the scriptures and they just have a tendency to, through inattention, drift away. When we fail to pay attention to the doctrines of God's spirit, we are more likely to fall to doctrines of demons. But when we faithfully pay attention to the doctrines of God's spirit, we will easily spot and reject the false doctrines of demons. If you are in the word and if you know doctrine, when you see false teaching, you just go, whatever. Not true. I can see that it's false. You want to be able to recognize it at face value. So second of all, beware of false spirits. Second thing to beware of, false teachers. Beware of false teachers in verses two and three. Demons are the source of the false teaching. Human teachers are the channels by which that false teaching is promulgated said in verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. 
He's saying to avoid these men, these teachers, because the enemy uses people to lead other people astray. There's not going to be a demon that comes to you. Satan is not going to come to you in his form. It's going, the way the enemy is going to come is through false teachers and the doctrines of demons that the false teachers are announcing. Human teachers are those channels. They're the medium, they're the conduit of the false teaching. And Paul describes the false teachers in Ephesus this way. Number one, he says, they're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. The word hypocrisy means to, to speak through a mask, and it was used of, um, uh, of, of, of Greek drama. You'd put on a mask, and that's where the word hypocrite came from. You are answering back, and you're wearing a mask, and it's, you're not who you, you're playing to be. You're, you're play-acting to be something that you're not. Of course, we know hypocrisy to be saying one thing and doing another, and that's exactly what they were doing. And the hypocrisy of the false teachers in Ephesus, we will see as we go on in the book, even though they're calling people to asceticism and to limit things in their life, we're going to see that they are sexually immoral themselves because they're taking advantage of widows. We're going to see that they're gluttons and they're drunkards, drunkards and they're greedy after money. That's why the qualifications of elders and deacons are so important because they were, uh, they were a polemic, if you will, against the false teachers and ticking off all the things that they were not. They're hypocrites. They say one thing and do another. They're liars. Of course they're liars. We, we must remember that this deceit is the opposite of the truth that we are called to be pillars of. We have the truth in the word of God and the spirit of God and the confession of who Christ is. And liars do what liars do. And we must remember that that deceit is opposite of what the truth, what the church is founded upon. We are founded upon the truth. And next, their conscience is seared. The repeated violation of one's conscience recalibrates your conscience. And we, know, we have to be careful that that doesn't happen to us. The word, um, the word seared here was actually a medical term at the time. We get the word cauterized from it to, to burn something and so that the nerve endings are deadened and there's no feeling anymore. But, but there may be a, tu, uh, a dual idea here. He says their, their, their minds, their consciences are seared as with a branding iron and there was a means in which some, something was branded for possession. In other words, this is the sign of the false teachers that they belong to the enemy. They're liars. They're hypocrites. And their conscience is seared and they, they, they don't even care anymore whether something is right or whether something is wrong. They have no conscience. And a seared conscience is one that has lost sensitivity to the truth. The next thing that we see about them is that they teach what is contrary to God's revealed truth. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul said, I, I left you there to tell these men not to teach other doctrines. And these men think that they know the law, but they don't know the law, and they've abused the law. But they are teaching that which is contrary to God's revealed truth. And the specific error of the false teachers in Ephesus was this. It's odd. Teaching abstinence from marriage 
and teaching abstinence from certain foods. The dietary thing is pretty common in the New Testament with false teachers. You need to go back to the Old Testament law and you need to, you know, you need to keep the dietary regulations. But abstinence in marriage is kind of an odd one. I think it's a means of control. We know that they're hypocrites. It probably has to do with sex, not just marriage. And we know that these men are sensual and they're taking advantage of women. It's because they're hypocrites and because they're liars and because all false teachers want power and control. It is possible, too, that uh, some scholars advance the idea that um, there was a, uh, a belief, uh, an over-realized eschatology, theologians call it, that they, would, they believed that, the, that Christ had already returned, that the resurrection had already happened, that they were living in the kingdom, therefore there's no need for marriage because there's no, no marriage in heaven possible. The problem is it's not taught anywhere in the scripture. Legalism is a doctrine of demons, always. Their error was legalism. And their error was asceticism. Asceticism is the idea of disciplining oneself and denying things from your life that are usually good. And this is the idea in Gnosticism at the, at the time that, uh, well, I will deny myself because God will accept me. And that's simple legalism. Simple legalism. So here are some lessons. Godliness is not achieved by legalism. Legalism is the belief and the practice that God is going to accept you based upon the things that you do. You need to keep the law. You need to do, you need to do better. You need to pull yourself up. Doctrines of demons always leads to legalism. The idea that God is going to accept you based upon your works. No, we are saved by grace through faith. Great is the mystery of godliness that comes through the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who was sent for us. And often, oftentimes, legalism is based upon the things that you're not supposed to do, as is the case here. Don't get married. Don't eat these kinds of food. Don't dance, don't chew, don't go with girls who do, right? Oftentimes, that's what legalism is. It's all the things that you can't do. Legalists are very unhappy people. They are not full of joy. Christianity is a religion of grace. We are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. He saved us not on the basis of things that we have done and not on the basis of things that we have not done, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And legalism is justifying myself before God because I'm doing the right things. I will never do the right things apart from him. There is no good thing that dwells in me. Great is the mystery of godliness that comes through grace. And that is the way that we are to leave, live. Second lesson, false doctrine and false living always go hand in hand. Whenever there are false teachers, you're gonna find some kind, of, some kind of scandal in their lives. When you hear about the, the, the TV preacher or the radio preacher or the, the musician that, that walks away from the faith, and then you find out they were embezzling, they were having an affair, whatever it may be, there is always sin involved. Either license 
or legalism. Even those who live a life of legalism based upon false doctrine, they're living a lie because they're living in such a way that they think God is going to accept them at the end of their life because I follow the teachings of the church, because I, I go through the, the things that God has told me to do. False doctrine and false living go hand in hand, and we must be wary and must always be looking back to the truth. The last lesson in this section is this. Look out for your own hypocrisy. We're to live by God's spirit and God's grace and we want to be sensitive and we want to be receptive to God's truth. We do not want to sear our own consciences and the way that happens is we're tempted to do something. I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't do it and then we do it, oh no. And I shouldn't do it and I shouldn't do it and I do it, oh no. And I shouldn't do it and I do it and I shouldn't do it. First thing, it's no big deal. I don't feel anything anymore. I don't feel that it's wrong. God's word says that it's wrong, but I don't feel that way anymore because my conscience has been deadened and my conscience has been seared by that cauterization of violating my conscience over and over and over again. The antidote to a seared conscience is a simple, consistent walk with Jesus Christ, worshiping on a regular basis fellowshipping with God's people. Confession of sin. If you've not confessed sin in a while, you may begin to drift. And prayer. Prayer is essential. In fact, that's where Paul ends this section talking about prayer. Where we see that we are to avoid and beware of false spirits and we are to beware of of false teachers. But in verses three through five, Be grateful for God's good gifts. He turns it around and and he gives the reason that this particular teaching in in Ephesus was wrong about forbidding marriage and about forbidding foods, that we are to be grateful for the good things that God has given to us. He said, these men are forbidding people to eat foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and those who know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Let me take you through his line of reasoning here. Number one, God created marriage and he created food to be gratefully enjoyed by true believers. He created marriage. Marriage was started in the garden. The Bible begins with marriage. The Bible ends with marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And marriage is a picture of the gospel. Man and a woman coming together is a picture of Christ in the church. And he created marriage to be a good thing. And he also created foods which are a good thing. Jesus declared all foods clean. Remember in Mark chapter seven, he said to his disciples, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. 
Jesus declared all foods clean. Pork, shrimp, lobster, everything is good. And the Lord showed Peter in Acts chapter 10 that all foods were clean. He said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Why would you consider what God has cleansed as unholy? Are you calling God a liar? The next line of reason we see is this. All of God's creation is good. He says, everything created by God is good. All of God's creation is good. That's the reason that food can be gratefully received and shared in because God made it. And everything that God made is good. Paul had already spoken about marriage and child rearing positively in chapter two. And and later in chapter five, he's going to uh, encourage the young widows, get married and have kids. Marriage is a good thing. Because it was created by God. And and in Genesis one, seven times, God says it 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 was good. 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 It was very good. It's the last thing that he says. His creation is good. Who are we to say something of his creation is not good? Marriage? Food? No. Yes, sin can mar food. Yes, sin can mar marriage. But they are not evil in and of themselves. They are good. They are created by God for good purposes. And God created marriage to be enjoyed. God created the physical relationship in marriage to be enjoyed. God created food to be enjoyed. Yes, it can be marred by sin. But in its essence, they are good. And then he says, because of that, all creation being good, what God has given to us is to be thankfully received. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. In context, he's talking about marriage and food. If God made it good, take it with gratitude. Because rejecting what God has made for good and saying that it is somehow evil and cannot be partaken of, you are calling into question the goodness of God himself. And God's desire is for us to enjoy his creation and all that he has provided. But then the last thing in these verses, the prayer of thanksgiving affirms what God has said about his creation. Because Paul says, for it is sanctified, that is, the good things that God has made, they are sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. That doesn't mean they are made holy. Our prayer is a recognition that they are good already. The prayer does not make it holy. But we are recognizing this is our response of gratitude. God, you've given me all of these good things. And so they are holy. So here are are a few lessons. Number one, the goodness of God and his creation should be our default worldview. Thinking that everything is good. The worldview, as we have taught it here at Valley Bible Church, and the Bible teaches us, Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the arc of history right there. Where do we, have, where do we tend to focus? On the fall. Where, should, where are we right now? We're in redemption. We've been redeemed. 
And God wants us to enjoy marriage and he wants us to enjoy food and he wants us to enjoy all the good gifts that have been given to us. We get stuck in the fall. Our default should be the goodness of creation. Second of all, gratitude is expressed in prayer. He says it here. It is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. That's how we give thanks. Prayer is that dependence upon God and lack of prayer is dependence on self. It is self-sufficiency. By the way, don't underestimate the power and the place of saying grace before meals because that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about taking your food and before you eat it, giving thanks. Jesus did it when he fed the 5,000. Jesus did it when he fed the 4,000. Jesus did it when he gave the elements of the Last Supper. He always gave thanks. It was, the, it's the, it was a tradition to always give thanks, and us as well. And it's not just rub-a-dub-dub, thank you for the grub. It is, this is a recognition, a recognition that all on this table, even if it's grapes or bread, represents to us all that God has given to us, all the good gifts that come down from above. Every good thing belongs to us. And, and moms and dads use saying grace as that opportunity to turn this back to more than just thank you for this food, amen. No, thank you, God, for all of your gifts because food represents the sustenance and the bread of life that is Jesus Christ himself and all that goes with it in our salvation. So saying grace before our meals is very, very important. And third, gratitude is expressed in a life of grace. Living a life of grace. That's how we express our gratitude. Those who are deceived or enslaved to legalism. But those who know the truth are set free to enjoy all of God's bounty and all that he's given to us. And we should live our lives that way G.K. Chesterton helps us with a poem. He said this, You say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. That is enjoying all good things that God has given to us. A life of gratitude. And that's the, that's the antidote to legalism. So, in conclusion, two things of which we are to beware and a reason for gratitude. Source of all false teaching is demonic. The channel of false teaching is false teachers. But the answer to the error of legalism is gratitude for all of God's gifts given to us. We needn't fear this enemy that we face, for greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And as the Apostle Paul prayed in Romans, O God of peace, crush Satan under our feet. That is our prayer.